electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. You're listening to Halftime Report in progress. A hearing. Um, and so, but I want to just return to that uh, briefly. Um, I am very glad to see it's been about a year since the Fed and the OCC and the FDIC issued their proposed rule to modernize implementation of the Community Reinvestment Act. Um, you know, I don't think that the proposal was perfect by any means, but it does make really important improvements to how, through the CRA, financial services organizations can serve and meet the needs of communities um, that are full of assets but lack the resources to make it happen like wealthy communities can. So I think, Chair Powell, you indicated that um, the, you expect this new CRA rule to be finalized in, in the coming months. Is that what you're, you indicated? Yes, that's right. And um, can you just tell us, with the departure of Dr. Brainerd, um, who will be spearheading the CRA efforts? So I've asked um, Vice Chair uh, Barr to to be responsible for moving the project forward. Of course, it, it has to go to the whole board, right? And and everyone everyone gets a vote on that. But he'll be he'll be uh, pushing it forward. That's great. Thank you. Um, and um, I was glad to see that disaster preparedness and climate <clears throat> resiliency were added to the definition of community development activities that would be eligible for the CRA credit. And this is important, of course, because low and moderate income folks and the communities that they live in often face some of the worst impacts of climate change and extreme weather events. This isn't social engineering, this is dealing with the actual costs and challenges that people experience um, because of climate change. So, Chair Powell, can you talk to us a little bit about um, how you see that change and how it fits with the CRA's overarching objectives? So I, I think it fits for the reasons that you said. I um, Honestly, I'm, I'm a week or so away from getting a briefing on where the proposal lies, so I'm I'm reluctant to touch on. I mean, I, I, I again, I'd, I'd rather wait till after I'm fully briefed on on where that agreement came out after the FOMC meeting. So, thank you. That's fine. I'll look forward to continuing this conversation with As you and um, and uh, with Mr. Barr, and um, just appreciate this. I think you know my view of this is that climate change and the economy are inextricably linked, and the reality is that climate-related action or inaction has a direct financial impact um, on um, on people and our economy. Um, and um, I was wondering if you would just be willing to update us briefly on um, some of the next steps that the Fed is going to be looking at as you evaluate evaluate the resilience of financial institutions to um, with respect to climate risk. There's this pilot project that just um, was um, started in January, I think it was, of this year. And I'm curious to know how you see next steps there. So we, um, we're we doing really two things. One is uh, we are um, doing a climate stress scenario, yep. which uh, the banks are already doing, the large banks, the six that we're working with. And that's really just to understand, to begin the process of understanding the risks that are associated with this over the longer term. They're, again, they're already doing it, and, and, the, and uh, it's something that... Uh, 
there's a lot of learning going on uh, around the world, actually. The other thing we're doing is, is providing guidance. The banks want clear guidance. They actually want one set of rules globally. The big banks that you know, do business around the world, they, they're hoping that they aren't in a world where there's just different regulatory regimes everywhere they go. So we're, we're, we're kind of working on that as well. Great. Thank you very much, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Senator Smith. Uh, Senator Tillerson, North Carolina is recognized. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Chair Powell, thank you for being here. Uh, in your opening statement, I was I was here for that. I think you touched on some of the uh, um, interest rate sensitive components of GDP and non-interest rate sensitive components of GDP. I, I think you said that uh, we do have a, a concern in the latter group, inflation expectations, labor market uh, tightening, et cetera. Can you tell me a little bit about um, how you're looking at the interest rate sensitive and non-interest rate sensitive readings and whether the Fed, um, what, what sort of Fed actions can uh, take place to avoid a, a zero landing? Sure. So on, um, you know, the um, housing sector, of course, is interest sensitive spending is, is, that, is the thing that they're very directly affected by our policies almost right away. And the poster child for that is housing. And so you've seen mortgage rates now go up, back up over 6%. You've seen housing starts come down. Activity in housing has declined as people are reluctant to get out of their, their you know, the low mortgages, low rate mortgages they had before. So housing activity is, is slowing down. On the other hand, housing prices went up in the aggregate more than 40% since the beginning of the pandemic. So uh, we may be seeing some price correction on that too. So. That's coming along, and and housing housing inflation, uh, which is a, a big part of the CPI, a little bit smaller part of the PCE, the the, the inflation measures we uh, uh, we follow, what we we rely on, uh, that will be coming down because of the slowdown in the housing market. The I guess I would say the service sector is probably less uh, interest sensitive than that, and that's you know that's restaurants, it's um, travel services, travel and leisure, it's healthcare, it's financial services. Healthcare services, all those services, and that's that's a big, big part of our economy. It's this sector is fifty six is is fifty fifty four percent, I guess, fifty six percent of the of consumer spending on non energy and food. So it's very important, and it's you know it, it's um, it's about having a little bit softer demand and about having some softening in labor market conditions. We think our tools will work on that, but we do expect that that will take time. Thank you. I, I know uh, uh, the chairman uh, in his opening comments mentioned uh, a, a belief, I don't want to misquote him, but a belief that we have too little capital in the banking sector. It may be true of a couple of banking institutions, but how do you feel about the, the current capital uh, that our broader banking sector, irrespective of where they are in, in size, what concerns, if any, do you have about the uh, the capital that we see out there already? So I supported all of the capital raising that we did. <clears throat> I joined the Fed in 2012, and we were in the middle of, of implementing all those Dodd-Frank increases, and I supported all of them. Um, after careful thought and discussion with my colleagues, I think um, we the, the new vice chair is doing what new vice chairs do, which is to, to take a fresh look and ask the question, um, even though I think we all agree capital is strong, certainly the vice chair does. The question is, is it is it at the right level? And I think that's yeah. that's what happens with a new vice chair for supervision. We don't have any proposals yet, but uh, at some point we will. 
Yeah, I'm going I'm to be meeting with the vice chair and we'll drill down on that topic. But I do know uh, I was over in finance committee, so I wasn't here, but I do know that several members, uh, well, first off, we know that uh, Vice Chair Barr is looking at a holistic review of capital requirements. I think that that's a good idea. Uh, but I have to ask a question. Um, do you think, uh, does the Fed consider the bipartisan passed <clears throat> Senate Bill 2155, which is currently the law of the land, to, uh, superior to any of the Basel requirements or any holistic review process? In other words, it is the law of the land. How does that weigh into how these reviews go? So 2155 was, <clears throat> um, I think you're talking about, about um, tailoring. <clears throat> yeah. So. Dodd Frank actually called for tailoring, and and um, <clears throat> uh, what 2155 did is it was it said changed may tailor to shall tailor, and it also changed the thresholds. Yep. But tailoring is an absolutely bedrock aspect of our of our bank regulatory um, uh, <clears throat> system, and anything that we do is going to reflect what we think is appropriate tailoring between. You know the, the different sizes and risks and uh, of the financial institutions that we that we and supervise and regulate. What we were trying to accomplish as a part of that, uh, I don't expect you to respond. I know that we're coming to the end of the the hearing, is that a holistic review of a financial services institution is going to reveal the fact that um, many of these financial institutions are very different based on the activities that they're most um, uh, most involved in. And those sort of holistic reviews may actually result in increasing capital requirements for two banks that look like peers, but not for another because of the inherent risk associated with their business focus. Does that make sense? To, to your earlier point, though, the law, the Dodd-Frank language, and as amended, actually requires that we take those things into consideration. So and we, I hope we that certainly we will. will. We will. Thank you. Thanks, Senator Chell. Senator uh, Ornock is recognized from Georgia. Thank you so very much, Mr. Chairman. Um, before I begin um, my questions, um, I know that uh, this committee will soon consider a, a new nominee to serve on the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. And while it has not historically been the case, um, it seems to me that the board should reflect uh, the diversity of our nation, <clears throat> that those... Uh, things are connected, policy and uh, representation uh, are connected. And I, I hope uh, that we will see sitting before this uh, committee a nominee that pushes us closer uh, towards our ideals of e pluribus unum out of many. Um, one, and I, I support Senator Menendez and others who have uh, called uh, for a diverse nominee, specifically the fact that we've never had a Latino person serve on the Federal Reserve Board, I think it's a huge oversight, and I hope we can move uh, quickly in that direction. That said, uh, my state of Georgia is in a housing crisis. Like much of the country, the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta has designated owning a home in Atlanta as unaffordable to the average home buyer. But this is not just a city problem. Uh, Harris County, Georgia with a population of less than 35,000 sitting on the border of Alabama is also rated as unaffordable. In the midst of this housing crisis, the Federal Reserve continues, continues to raise interest rates. This makes mortgages a lot more expensive for families, especially young families looking to buy a house. According to the National Association of Realtors, the share of first-time home buyers is at an all-time low while the average age of a purchaser, purchaser is at an all-time high. Uh, Chair Powell, you have said that 
uh, there has been, quote, uh, an imbalance in the housing market. But if you're a Georgia family, parents in the mid-30s, young children, and all you want is to be able to afford your first home and place and build equity to one day pass that equity on to your kids, how are the Fed's actions uh, helping that family afford a home? Our, um, our mandate is to uh, provide maximum employment, use our, our tools to foster maximum employment and price stability. And we're using those tools really now to restore price stability in a, at a time of the highest inflation in 40 years. I think that um, the same people who are having high mortgage um, uh, costs, if they have a floating rate mortgage, are also experiencing high costs for all the, all the basic necessities of life. And, and one of our most fundamental roles at the central bank is to, is to keep price stability. So we have to prioritize that in, in what we do. Yeah, I understand the, the tools and, and the mandate, but my concern is that we could have a cure uh, that's worse than the, the, than the disease. It, it doesn't do families any good if, if we stabilize housing prices while mortgage rates uh, continue to skyrocket. It, it, it doesn't matter to me why a house is unaffordable. Maybe the house is unaffordable. Maybe the mortgage is unaffordable. Unaffordable is unaffordable. How does the Federal Reserve continue the, con, consider the total price, the total price of home ownership, including costs of mortgages, in executing that mandate to keep prices stable? It um, housing inflation is a is a very important uh, component of various uh, inflation indexes, and uh, so and the way that's calculated is it's uh, the economists look at rents. And then for people who own a home, they impute a rent depending on the value of the home. So it actually does factor in. And I would say the measures of, um, of uh, new leases that are being signed and, and new housing prices show f significant declines in, in inflation, not in price, but in inflation. And that, that will play through so that overall inflation over the course of the next six months or a year will, uh, will decline. If, if we're seeing mortgage rates go up, yes or no, does this discourage folks who may have a low interest mortgage rate from putting their home on the market and then possibly paying double the cost on a mortgage for their new house? It certainly could. I, people who are in, in a low mortgage, uh, uh, a fixed rate, low rate mortgage, I would does, assume does, many of them are not moving. Yeah, does raising the federal interest rate change the cost of borrowing for a company hoping to develop new housing? Yes. Does it make it more expensive for suppliers to finance expanding production to meet supply needs? It does. Does it give businesses less wiggle room to offer higher wages and attract qualified workers? Indeed. Yeah. So uh, all of these actions uh, have to be taken into account. Federal Reserve does not control housing supply, but its actions do have a massive effect on, on housing supply. And some of these supply effects, it seems to me, will be felt for many years, well beyond when interest rate hikes have slowed or rates have even gone down. And um, I, I know you've got a difficult job and a tough situation, but I, I just hope that the Fed will think more about its actions and, and how they affect housing supply, even as it attempts to control housing demand. Thank you. Thanks, Senator Warnock. Uh, the last question, I believe, is questioner is um, Senator Sinema is uh, remote from Arizona. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. 
And Chairman Powell, thank you for being here today. In raising interest rates last month by 25 basis points, the FOMC cited Russia's war against Ukraine as a key contributor to elevated global uncertainty. The war has serious implications for global energy and agricultural markets. And as you know, energy inflation in particular can appear in the form of higher prices of other goods and services. This feels like a substantial driver of inflation overall. And in my mind, you can't understand the global economy fully without assessing the range of possible outcomes in Ukraine. As we've also seen, the war created new supply chain problems overnight and has caused abrupt price swings in select committees. How is the FOMC assessing the economic impact of the war and the range of potential outcomes in order to inform how it sets monetary policy? So the, the principal, um, I guess there are two things to say. One is that the principal way that the war has affected uh, our economy is really through commodity prices, grain and particularly energy prices. That is, uh, that's the, the, the main thing. I think really, and those, those have both flattened out. Energy prices globally have settled down and they're at a higher level and, and food prices as well to some extent. So the second thing I would say is uh, that, that it represents a significant risk. So the war in Ukraine, uh, the outcome is uncertain, developments there are uncertain, and uh, you have to think of it as a, as a source of potential risk to the global economy and to, to our economy. We don't, um, and we, we look at alternative scenarios and things like that, we don't really do it from a geopolitical standpoint, but we do, of course, model scenarios where, com where commodity prices are higher and, and, and things that, that would look like, uh, like what could happen from Ukraine. Thank you. At home, Arizona families are struggling to navigate this economy. Higher prices are making it more difficult to afford groceries, gas, rent, and airfare. But on the other hand, rising interest rates are crowding out investment and making it more difficult for first-time homebuyers to buy a home. Inflation has also slowed housing development to a halt in Arizona. And as you know, Chairman, housing is a major economic contributor in my state. It's also clear that more spending comes with trade-offs. And it's why tackling inflation has historically been so difficult and yet it's more important than ever that we get it under control. There's been much debate about a soft landing, where we get inflation under control without triggering a recession, versus a hard landing, where inflation comes down but triggers a painful recession. Some economists are currently saying they see no landing right now, that growth is actually accelerating, and that more aggressive actions will be needed to get inflation under control. If true, that would be problematic. What do you think about that assessment? Well, as I mentioned uh, earlier, um, I think if you look at the data that's been coming in since earlier this year, you have seen uh, stronger labor market conditions, higher inflation, stronger consumer spending, and also we saw some of the low inflation readings from the fourth quarter of last year revi revised away. If you take all of those, uh, they kind of all they, they may be to some extent related to things like seasonal adjustments or or uh, a warm January, but nonetheless they all point in the same direction, and they do suggest that uh, the possibility that we that ultimately would need to raise rates higher than had been expected. Of course, we have uh, two or three more uh, very important data releases to analyze before the time of the FOMC meeting. Those are going to be very important. In, in the assessment we have of this relatively recent data. We'll be looking carefully at that. And, uh, and all of that will go into making the decision, <clears throat> which we have not made, uh, but making the decision that we'll make about what to do at the March meeting. Well, thank you. On February 23rd, the Fed, the FDIC, and the OCC released another joint statement on crypto assets and liquidity risks posed to banking organizations. 
it's clear that regulators see undue risk for banks in the current environment and are taking a more conservative approach. Do you believe these risks are inherent to crypto assets and how they behave? Or is some of the risks a product of the current regulatory and policy landscape for crypto assets in the U.S.? So we're, we're seeing, um, really, in the last close to a year now, we've seen just a remarkable um, <clears throat> set of events in the crypto space. Lots of companies collapsing. Uh, we've seen massive fraud. We've seen all kinds of things. I think, you know, we, we have to be open to the idea that it, somewhere in there, there is technology that can, that can, uh, can be uh, the feature, can be featured in productive innovation that, that, uh, that, that makes people's lives better. However, in the near term, we see in crypto activity lots of things that suggest that regulated financial institutions should be quite cautious, and that's in, in doing uh, things in the crypto space. And that's what we've, we've issued three or four uh, releases to, to, to the banks, uh, along with the OCC and the FDIC, the Fed has. And, and they, they essentially say, you really need to be careful here. You need to be careful. It's, it's early days with crypto. There isn't the appropriate regulation. We're learning lots about the risks, uh, and they are many of the same risks that, that run, are run in other parts of the financial system, but without appropriate regulation. Uh, thank you, Senator Powell. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Sinema. Um, we conclude the hearing. Uh, the Fed must make sure that workers and families are at the center of, our, of every decision it makes to strengthen our economy. We've heard a lot today about the role that Wall Street plays in our economy too. As you've said, Mr. Chair, we know that higher capital requirements make banks safer and stronger. It allows them to make investments in their workers, in their communities, in our economy. Uh, that's what they should be doing instead of, of uh, spending billions on buybacks. I, I look forward, Chair Powell, to working with you to strengthen our economy. For senators who wish to submit questions for the hearing record, these questions are due one week from today, Tuesday, March 14th. To Chair Powell, please submit your responses to questions for the record 45 days from the day you receive them. I, I thank my colleagues for the very, very good attendance today. Only one member on each side was not here, one for health reasons, the other just because he's doing 12 different things. So I appreciate all that, and thanks for your testimony, your public service, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman. All right, and with that, let me welcome you to the Halftime Report. Good afternoon. I'm Scott Wapner, Fed Chair Jay Powell, as you see, just wrapping up his testimony before the Senate Banking Committee, suggesting that interest rates could go higher, get there faster, and stay there longer than previously thought. We will stay the course until the job is done, said Chair Powell. Stocks moving lower just as soon as Powell's testimony was released. You can see an intraday of the S&P 500 there. We've just come a little bit off the lows, but nonetheless, we've been trending in that direction from the get-go today. Bond yields go in the opposite direction. They're moving higher as are rate expectations. I'll show you what the uh, two-year, the 10-year, the two-year is now pushing 5%, 10-year pushing 4 the probability of a 50% basis point hike in March increasing slightly. But the real story, perhaps, is the probability of 50 in May was 75% just a short time ago. Terminal rate now in the 5.5 to 5.75 range. So all of this for the investment committee to discuss and debate. Joining me today, Stephanie Link. Jim Labenthal, Kerry Firestone, of course, our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman, is with us, too, as he has been watching from the get-go as well. So, Steph, I begin with you. I guess the risk always was even higher, even faster, and for even longer. 
That's kind of what he said today, is the possibility. Yeah, and that we're also going to be data dependent, right? And so we have a lot of data. We talked about this last week. We have a lot of data that's coming this week with jobs, CPI, PPI, retail sales next week. That's going to be very important. Um, but honestly, Scott, I, I don't think a lot of what he said was that surprising. We've been talking about the economy doing better, right, led by the consumer, and he cited consumer spending. We know jobs have been white hot. They continue to be white hot, which this is why the Friday number is going to be super important. Um, he also talked about manufacturing improving in January, which is a bit of a surprise, right, because that has been some part of the economy that hasn't been that great. And then he talked about inflation, and we've been talking about inflation whatever way you want to measure it. CPI, PPI, core PCE, unit labor costs. He mentioned services X housing several times. We know the last reading was a 7.7% rise. Mm -hmm. So we know that that part of the economy is the problem, and it's going to be harder for them to change that, to be honest. So it, but but, the, but the, I step back and I say, wow, wait, the economy is not terrible, which is what we've been talking about. Pocket's not so good. But then I listen to someone like the Eaton CEO on the show earlier uh, today, and he's talking about 85% of his end markets, they expect to see solid double-digit growth by tw uh, in 2023. And that's all because, obviously, infrastructure and the reshoring. And so there are kinds of pockets within the economy that are okay. And that's the, those are the areas where I still want to be invested in from a, from a, a portfolio management point and, of view. You know, Steve, I guess you had to figure that the chair was going to be more hawkish today. That was the risk, I guess, going in. It's notable, too, that what Phil LeBeau reported earlier about used car prices and the Fed chair discussing the fact that goods disinflation seems to be slowing a bit and services <coughs> disinflation is really slow. And therein lies the problem, right? Yeah, he's just not getting the help. Uh, I, I think it was interesting the way he kind of uh, explained how his view has changed because of the data that we've been talking about almost every day from January. Not only did it come in hotter than expected, but it was those revisions. And Governor Waller gave us a bit of a curtain raiser on how that's affected Fed officials, basically saying, you know, the data's changed, so the outlook has changed. And that's why you get this idea that if the data remains the way uh, it, it has been, when the Fed goes to pencil in a new terminal rate in March, it's going to be uh, higher than they previously put in there. And uh, I don't think the market was quite prepared for that. I think they were prepared for the idea that it could be higher. But what it wasn't prepared for is the idea of a more rapid pace, the idea they go back to 50s. And, and, and Scott, I just want to go through. It's a little complicated, guys. But if you could put up the probability changes that we've seen, what's happened now is uh, you have, and I'm going to put my glasses on to look at this, Scott, a 56% probability they go up to five, five and a quarter. And that's uh, double, the uh, more than double the percentage it was before the speech. And then a 93% probability you go to five and a quarter, five and a half. 71% probability you go to five and a half, 5.75. You can see all of those percentages are substantially higher. So what the market has now baked in here, Scott, is as you said at the top of this segment here, um, higher, longer, and perhaps more rapid. He just said again that if the data continues to uh, come in the way it's been, we could get there more rapidly. Because, Jim Labenthal, you got a couple of problems. You got the economy is hotter than the Fed chair wants it, and disinflation is slower than he needs it, which is why we just had this conversation with Steve and the chair said what he did today. That's not a great message if you're touting all of the bullish things you see in the stock market for reasons why equities can, can
continue to advance even in the face of everything the Fed's doing. Scott, that's an excellent assessment that you just said. Um, my qualification to it, I hope you'll allow this, is that we were in a different context, a different sentiment about five weeks ago after the last Fed meeting, right? Uh, remember, that's when he started talking about disinflation and disinflation started to pop up in the media hits. It was two days later you got that labor report for January and then you had four weeks of January data that was just not good. It was not good and it really did blow a hole in the disinflation uh, theory. The problem is I don't know and you don't know and nobody knows if January is an aberrational blip. Let's remember that three months prior to that, October, November, December, you had good uh, inflation, better than expected inflation. Not numbers. necessarily from the services side. That's the part that you haven't. Let me come right back to that. To co- well, it's let, the most important but, point. But I, okay, but let me. That finish. hasn't cooperated let, with you. Let me get right there. Okay, but but let me just say we don't know if January's numbers, which is all that the Fed has in front of it right now, when he speaks right now, Powell is focused on January's numbers. We don't know if it's an aberration or a blip. We need February's numbers, which starts this week with average hourly earnings, Jim. and then you get CPI, PPI. Steve, give me one second because I want to address Scott's point. It's It's a very good one, okay? I understand we are looking at this granularly. The Fed is looking at this granularly. Services, ex-shelter, core ex-shelter. I get it. But you have to understand, as much as he doesn't want to admit it, the Fed is a political beast. And if you get headline CPI, which is what I'm talking about, if you get it moderating, that's a big if, okay? But if you get it moderating, the Fed is hell-bent for leather to crush jobs while CPI headline is moderating, that's going to be a political problem for them. Steve? Just real quick, I want to correct the idea that it was just the January data. Um, You know, Scott Wapner, the judge, is very good at calling people on the carpet. He's never called me on the carpet for my about face on this. And what happened, Jim, was that I was relying very much on the precipitous decline in the three-month inflation rate. That was pretty much revised away. And that's really for what's going on. It's more than just January. If it was one month, Jim, I'd be on board with you. And maybe it ends up going away again and we get better in, in March. But it was more than just January. I did an about face on thinking the Fed was was doing way too much and now I'm thinking they had they're in the right place because of those revisions. So Kerry Firestone sitting here as, as well. What, what do you make of what the Fed chair said today? Uh, whether part of it was a surprise to the market or not and how does it make you think about where we go from here? Well it was definitely somewhat of a surprise when the market's down. The market didn't go up and it moved down pretty sharply, although I I see it coming back a little bit. Um, Here's what I suspect he's addressing and and I'm concerned about it as well. We should all be. He referred to services several times in the testimony about how the service economy, it's more than half of the U.S. and it's very strong and people are spending money on travel and on restaurants and, and experiences and we know that consumer debt is going up and I think that if I were in his position, the way to control that, to try to get some of that debt to come down and stop building up a point in which we could have consumer defaults, is you've got to raise rates a little bit more than expected, and people start to feel that pressure and maybe not spend so much. Well, even higher, even faster, even longer. Let me me just cut to the chase with you, um, if if I might. Does this make you want to buy stocks or not? That's really what it yeah. boils down to. So, right? I mean, if you think they're going to go even higher, if they're going to get there even faster, and they're going to stay there even longer, 
you as a market participant, somebody who's managing money has to decide whether you want to be an investor in that environment or not. What's the answer? Yeah. So the answer is yes. It depends on the price that we're paying. If there's a value to be had, we're going to find it. And I I think, and we would all agree, that we're most of the way there. However far he's going, we're most of the way there. In terms of the longevity, how long they stay at a rate, I mean, that's pretty far out. And none of us are, you know, we can speculate sometime in 2024, the end of 24 beginning. I think more important is he's going to do the 50, and most people would be betting that there's not another 50. Yeah, Steve, I mean, you mentioned the, the probabilities of, of there being a 50. Who knows if it's, you know, on the 22nd? Who knows if it is in May? Who knows if it's in June? But are you putting your arms around the idea that what was thought to be 25, 25, and 25 is going to have a 50 wild card somewhere within it? Yeah, but it's, it's, it's just like Powell. I think i got to be conditional on the data. Uh, I was talking to Sarah Eisen this morning, and, and yes, if, if indeed the, the, the data come in, jobs on Friday, the, the number is 225, I think that's okay. Depends on really what's going on with the wage data. If the wage data is hot, I think that's going to be uh, fulfilling one of two ch- check boxes we want to talk about. And then we have the inflation data next week. You know, P- Powell, I think, is being clever here. He said he doesn't have to decide yet. He's preparing the market. There might be a little what you might call here, Scott, um, opportunistic disinflationary jawboning. And I think what he's doing is the market was running with him. And so he said, all right, I'm going to take that momentum and I'm going to let it go a little further. So if you look at, guys, that Fed rate outlook chart that shows where we're at, a new high on the uh, terminal rate at 560-561, and then also uh, a new high on that January 24, which is the proxy we used for year-end. You can see they're all above where the Fed is penciled in in the December rate. So that number, the Fed's median rate, is going to go up in March. Um, we're trading now, Scott, with a 56% probability of a 50 for March, and it's going to be contingent on the data. Uh, it, yeah. it is definitely the odds-on bet right now for the market. All right. Steve, I appreciate you being with us uh, right after this testimony. That's our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman. And, and speaking of data, uh, let's just show the S&P 500 because we're, we're hanging on to 4,000, uh, but barely. We're at 4,005. So we've got a loss of about 43 or so points. I, I bring it up because BTIG's Jonathan Krinsky, you know, later during the Powell testimony, put the following forward today. There will be a quote unquote attempt at a rally later today he thinks. Uh, Our sense is that despite the big push lower, there will be an attempt at a rally later. It will be the extent of that rally or lack thereof, however, that will be telling. Closing back under 4,000 would likely confirm that the latest rally was counter trend, and we should then expect a test of that 3,900 level later this week. So watch the market between now and let's say, you know, closing bell. See what happens. See if we do have an attempt at a rally. If we can confirm that we can stay over 4,000, it will be telling. Then there's Mark Newton of Fundstrat step. The technician there says these dips are temporary and viable. So, you know, I don't know what side of the ledger you come down. He says support should be found at 3980 to 4005. As I was reading you the Krinsky stuff, right. we we're literally at 4005. Yeah. Yeah. We're in a trading range, Scott. We've talked about this. We're not going to get out of the trading range until we have some certainty. And we're not going to get certainty until we get data that comes out 
that's actually more favorable. And I just don't think the inflation data, you can have better inf- uh, data across the board in terms of a slowdown, which I actually don't even think that's better, but I'm just going to say that. Um, if you have everything slowing down, but you have inflation continuing to be high, that's just still not enough. And so that, as a result, we're going we're gonna to go from whatever it is. Is it 3,800 to 4,200? Whatever that may be. I, I am looking for opportunities into the spaces that we talked about, into the industrials, into financials, um, and, and also consumer discretionary, because I do think the consumer is in better shape, especially with $1.7 trillion yeah. in savings. Well, I mean, so, you're assuming that if you go to 38, you stop at 38, because, you know, we, we got down to the 200-day moving average on the S&P, 39.40, and it was significant that we, we bounced above that. And for the time being, we, we've been able to hold that. The question is, if you, if you breach that, where's the stopping point? But let, let's do this. Let's squeeze in a break, okay? Because mm-hmm. Steph has some moves to discuss on the other side. A couple of sells, a buy, uh, some pretty big names, too, uh, which we'll do next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, we're back. Dow's down 328, as you just saw there. So, Steph, I alluded to these moves that you're making. Let's talk, okay? Mm-hmm. You sold Oxy. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, <clears throat> it's profit-taking. It was the best-performing energy stock last year. Yeah. Um, it hasn't had such a great year this year, but I wanted to take some, some gains. Um, it's still a wonderful story. I like Buffett and being involved as well. I think they're doing a really good do- job in terms of paying down debt and, and using their free cash flow wisely. But I just think there are better places within energy that I prefer. Like you know, what? I'm, Slumberger is one of them, and if that SLB. If that one comes down, that's one that I would actually add to. So I'm not getting more negative on energy. I'm just trying to get more particular. And the, and the ones that I like better, I want to be buying. I want to have a little cash to be able to do that. Okay. DR Horton, you sold it. We yeah. noted it yesterday. It did get downgraded yesterday at J.P. Morgan. Yeah, Why'd I mean, you sell it? Well, I mean, again, taking some profits. I still like the housing cycle very much, but I think this, the setup is kind of challenging, right? With higher interest rates, I think it might take a pause. But again, if this stock, because it's performed very nicely off the bottom, uh, and I made some pretty good money in it, if this were to pull back, I would certainly get back involved. I like their first mover um, in terms of their, their clientele, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and, and I like the valuation. I just think, again, I'm going to take both of these profits and put it into something that I think has more upside. Like what? 
looked like Ingersoll Rand. So we were just talking okay, so you about Ingersoll Rand. Yeah, IR. That's, a new, that's, a, that's a new position, and this okay. is a capex play, to be honest with you, right? Um, and so I think the company is going to grow double-digit earnings. Margins are poised to expand, and you know margins are a big one for me. Um, and their new orders in the first half of the year provide a lot of visibility for the second half of the year and overall 2023. So this is really again another capex onshoring pure play, uh, and I think the valuation is pretty compelling. Okay, uh, IR, we see it there, getting a little bit of lift. Carrie, what do you think of these moves? From I top think, to from top yeah. to bottom. So the Ingersoll Rand um, purchase, I think, is good. I think capital equipment is an important part of the economy right now, and I I think that's you know it's it's moving it's moving up, but I think it's got further to go. We don't own it, but I, I think that's a good move. Oxy, I think selling a big winner like that is a smart move. It, it, it can't ever hurt to sell a big winner. It was one of the best performing stocks uh, of all types last year, and it's got a lot of people in it. And when somebody turns negative, you know, it can take that stock down a lot. So I, I think you made a good move. Are you looking kind of across the board at all you have and thinking of being a seller on strength of, of certain things now? In some, in some instances, because I, I do have some gains in, in a lot of my stocks, right? So I don't want to be too greedy, but I also don't want to be too short-term, right? Because I do own the stocks that I own, and I own about 30 in my portfolio. I own them because I like them for the long term. But when something moves up so substantially mm-hmm. relative to other stocks in that sector, like I mentioned, right, Oxy versus Schlumberger, right. like I want to use that opportunity on the pullbacks on the ones that I really like to be able to buy, and I need a little bit of cash to do that. All right, coming up. Our calls of the day. We have bullish notes out today on Delta Airlines, Bank of America, and Charles Schwab. We got those trades coming up next. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Let's run through some calls of the day now. First up, there's Delta up near 3%. Getting an upgrade today, outperform Evercore ISI. Price target goes to $47 from 40 Jimmy you own Delta. I do own right. Delta. I own Alaska as well. I am bullish on the airline, Scott. And look, it's a simple equation here. You've got good revenue growth here. You've got, you can look at the TSA uh, passenger throughput on a daily basis. Demand is strong. But you've also got uh, pending stability in costs. We know what labor costs are going to be since they redid contracts. And fuel costs seem to be pretty stable as well. So this sets up an environment in which you have the potential for upside surprise, but your costs seem fairly locked in. Um, if you saw recession coming, you you would not want to own these stocks. But as we've been talking about, it just seems further and further away. So there's going to be some point then if you think we're going to have a recession, you're going to you're going to sell the airline names that you have. Yeah. And you know what? That's a really good question, because these are not hold for all time names. Um, These are right now, I think, relative to where we are in the cycle. They're undervalued, which is another way of saying the cycle itself is underappreciated. We're still growing. It looks like we're going to grow in the economy for some time. All right. Uh, Steph, Bank of America reiterated overweight. Wells Fargo, that's Mike Mayo. Yeah. Uh, What do you think? He's like like this for a really long time. And I like it, too. A diversified revenue mix. Right. If you think capital markets and wealth 
wealth management are bottoming or troughing. Um, I think we are, and that this stock is very cheap at 1.2 times book value. Capital levels are great. They just spent $10 billion over the last decade on technology that should help them be more efficient going forward. So I like the call. All right. Schwab reiterated overweight. Carry Atlantic Equities target goes, uh, actually target remains 100. Uh, that's 30% yeah. from here. Sure. What do we think? Yeah, I, I think that's a good call. We own Schwab, sells for under a market multiple. It's got a lot of organic growth. I mean, this industry has consolidated some, and they've gained market share. They've made some smart moves over the last few years, and higher interest rates help them because they're a bank and they have a lot of deposits. So we like that call. All right. Up next, Mike Santoli as his midday word. We'll talk to him in just a moment. All right. Welcome back. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joining us right now with his midday words. Good to see you. You expected a, a more hawkish Fed share, even if those expectations were from an incremental standpoint, right? I did, although at least I thought that he would have to acknowledge how much has changed since December in terms of the strength of the economy, but also uh, the way the market had repriced already. So even in that context, he might have uh, been a slightly more clear uh, than anticipated in terms of opening up that prospect of larger hike. One of the things we didn't know for sure was whether there was going to be any resistance to conveying that they're okay with slowing down to a quarter point and picking back the pace up to half point. Clearly, after the testimony today, he doesn't have a problem with that. Um, I think the market response is, you know, interesting um, and relatively measured. Uh, all things considered, we're, you know, kind of mm-hmm. not even given back last week's uh, little gain. So still seems mired, though. We're, we're kind of right in the middle of this one-month range in the S&P. I still, though, think by looking at the stock market and maybe partly your point that the the market doesn't believe it. I, I feel like they're still expressing that message of, yeah, believe it when I see it, that you're going to go even higher and even faster and stay there even longer that you, you know, you throw out there. Yeah, I think the longer part is is where there's the deepest skepticism implied by the market pricing. Clearly, you still have the 10 year under four um, percent, still seeing a relatively brief period of time at whatever the peak rates are. I really don't think that's because they don't believe what Powell's saying. I think it's because they sense that the longer and higher they go with rates, uh, the more chance there is for the economy to buckle and therefore it's out of their hands. Uh, We also, let's not forget, we know uh, when we embarked on this whole process, uh, the Fed did not have a handle on where it was going to end up. Uh, And, you know, we were talking about one hike in 2022 as recently as late 2021, right? So I, I do think you have to keep that all in mind as well. Yeah, no, you make a good point. I'm glad for the distinction, too, because I, I do mean this, the same thing, that yeah. by not believing it, I mean the, the market doesn't believe they can. That's right. Doesn't believe they'll be able to do it or they believe, they're going to break something. Yeah, they believe that the, that the probabilities, if you stack them all up, say there's a bigger chance that the economy can handle it or, you know, on the most positive spin, that inflation really just crashes from here and they're going to have no excuse to be sitting there with, you know, nearly 6% short-term rates if inflation, you know, somehow gets back below three. All right. So Krinsky says we're going to make an attempt at a rally and we're going to watch 4,000 and I'll see you in a couple hours to see what we do. If we we attempt it, if we confirm or fail or whatever. That's Mike Santoli. Grade My Trade is up next. Send us an email, askhalftime at cnbc.com. You can tweet us as well. We'll be right back. Grade my trade. First up, Carrie from Joel, 21-year-old college student, so my risk tolerance is higher than most. I recently purchased a lot of PayPal at $67. 
I would like halftime to rate my trade and provide feedback as I am already up. Thanks. What do you say? From Joel. Joel. What do you tell Joel? Right. Joel, I'm giving you an A minus. A minus? <laughs> Bought it at 67. What do you mean? I know, but this is a stock that moves around a lot, and it could be below 70 tomorrow. That's why. I mean, I own it, but it's a very volatile stock. All right. All right. A minus is pretty good. Come on. We're not into great inflation. Yeah, I understand. But I mean, you buy it at 67. It's at 75. It sounds like you have office hours. He needs to come. Yes. All right, Joel, that's what you get. Uh, Stephanie Link from Tyler. I bought 100 shares of Nike at 93. You own Nike. Yes, I do. I give this a total A. I mean, I might even give it an A plus to offset carries A minus. But uh, no, I mean, look, you're up 30 percent on the trade. That's great. But I still think you want to hold this thing because it's China's just beginning to reopen. Inventories are starting to come down, and DTC is a bigger percentage of total revenue. So I like this one. Direct to consumer, right? Direct to consumer. All right. You're getting good. Right. All right. Uh, All right, Jimmy. Uh, Daniel purchased 50 shares of AbV at 156. You own it? I'm going to give Daniel an A. Daniel, I'm giving it to you for two reasons, one of which this is this is really a stock that should be in everybody's portfolio. Very well priced, good growth prospects ahead of it, nice dividend yield. Uh, you really can just set it and forget it with this. But the other reason I give you an A is... Well, he bought it at 156. People, is at 152. You're just automatically you, giving him an you, A because you goodness, own it? My goodness. Would you just hold your horses, Judge? Well, I mean... The other reason for giving the A is because he's not one of these people who came in and said, I bought this stock at 35 and now it's 100. I mean, you know, I respect that. The guy came on. So it's he a sent sim- it It's in. a sympathy grade? No, it's an honesty. It's an integrity. It's a guts to stand in there and take the fire oh like you goodness. and me, buddy. Okay. All right. All right. Fair enough. Thank you for the, the uh, thank you for the trades. Thank you for the grades as well. All right. Final trades are next. That's awesome. All right, so the Dow's down nearly 400 points, so we got to see what's going to happen in the next few hours. At 3 o'clock Eastern time, join me on Closing Bell as we walk you right up to the close to see if we attempt a rally, whether we can close above 4,000 on the S&P. That's a key level. Greg Branch, Joe Terranova, Lauren Goodwin will be with me, and Low Tony as we talk tech, talk some meta, and everything else. I hope you'll be there with me. Uh, Carrie, final trade. What do you got? Health equity, HQY, it's a recipient, big one today, of higher interest rates because they're in the health savings plan business, number one in the country. The more employees are on, the better, and good interest rates moving moving higher, that's very good for health equity. All right. Farmer Jim. Uh, Cisco Systems. I I think you've just been getting more and more indications that hardware-oriented enterprise spending is doing really quite well. All right. There's Cisco, down 1%, and Stephanie Link. Keurig Dr. Pepper, it's down 13% from its highs in the summer. It trades at a 16% discount to Coke and Pepsi. I think the, conser- the guide is conservative, and the CFO has been buying stock hand over fist. And you don't own it. I don't own it yet. 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 <laughs> yet. All right, we'll keep our eyes there. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Does for us. I'll see you on Closing Bell. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.